Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I continue with my coverage of the situation in Afghanistan, as I feel that it will have significant security implications, not only in the region, but potentially also for the rest of the world. However, for my audience waiting for a return to more diverse topics, I assure you that I have many interesting and insightful conversations in the pipeline. On that note, I will shortly be releasing my conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman, the author of On Killing and On Combat, that I recorded last week. Until then, back to the situation in Afghanistan. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Martin and Dr. Christopher Ankerson. I've spoken with Mike a few times before and we'll link to our previous episodes in the show notes. Suffice to say that he is considered an expert on Afghanistan and is the author of the book An Intimate War, considered by many as the most authoritative book on the political, social and economic dynamics of Afghanistan. Dr. Christopher Ankerson is an Associate Professor at the Center for Global Affairs at New York University. Prior to joining NYU, he enjoyed a colorful and eclectic career, which includes being a security advisor for the UN, uh, as well as serving in the Canadian Armed Forces for more than a decade. Throughout his career, he has taught at the London School of Economics, the London Centre for International Relations, King's College London, Carleton University, and the Royal Military College of Canada. He has also lectured at staff colleges in Canada, Australia, and Denmark. I'll also provide a link to Chris's full bio in the notes. Mike and Chris joined me today on Saturday, 28th of August, uh, and it's approaching uh, just shy of 5 a.m. in Kabul to discuss the ongoing situation in Afghanistan and its implications for the region uh, uh, and, and beyond. Mike remains in Fiji and Chris is in New York City. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. Thanks, mate. Mike, maybe I can start with you and uh, probably with a broader question, uh, but uh, particularly uh, what is happening on the ground at the moment? And I, and I note that uh, the airport security has just been handed over uh, to Taliban. Uh, what are you hearing? Uh, yeah, so um, as you said, there's about three hours ago, the first Taliban uh, units took over a bit of the airport um, in uh, Kabul. Um, most of the uh, countries, in fact, every country except the US has folded their evacuation operations um and everyone's got out i don't think there are very many uk troops left um and they're the second biggest contingent after the americans and uh then the americans will be progressively over the next couple of days um handing over to the taliban and i know that the 31st was the deadline but the reality is when you've got to try and get all the people who are out in the airport as well as five thousand u.s marines and all the you know sensitive equipment and whatnot, then the reality is you need to start doing that um, several days earlier. Yeah. Um, more broadly, in Kabul, we um, well, we've got a bit of a patchwork going on. Um, obviously, t- two weeks ago now, almost. I mean, it was Sunday the fifteenth when the Afghan government collapsed, and then the surrounding Taliban units moved into Kabul to assume the security of Kabul. Um, uh, on a governance level, nothing much has happened. Like there's no ministers announced. We don't, you know, there's no government been formed. You know, mm. it's a complete vacuum. You know, technically, the president of Afghanistan is 
uh, Saleh, who's sitting up in Panjshir, and I know we're going to touch on that later, mm. who was the vice president. And because Rani fled, he automatically becomes the president. Um, and on, on, the, on the ground level, we've got quite a lot of jostling between different Talib factions to get those ministerial positions. We've had movements of Helmanis and Kandaharis up to Kabul and they've sort of occupied, they've just sort of occupied the finance ministry. And this is how you negotiate that kind of stuff. You, mm. you, you turn up and you occupy a ministry. Um, and then, you know, the checkpoints around the airport has been, you know, people have reported lots of different responses. And the reason they've got that is because it's actually different checkpoints in Kabul are controlled by different factions. So, you know, I think there's a number of questions that I guess we're going to go into, but like how much do the political Talibs who are saying all these nice things control the on the ground Talibs? Mm. How much unity is there between different Taliban military factions? Yeah. Uh, I think these are useful, and, I mean, useful questions. And mm. I think we may, you know, why don't we go down those questions? I think they they will set the context quite well and they're very important questions. Um, so, so, you know, wh- where are we? What is the what is the relationship in your view? And then maybe we'll... Uh, go across to Chris as well from uh, your perspective? I mean, I think, um, so I think there's a big, you know, first and foremost, there's a generational gap between mm. the political layer of Talibs who are mostly from the first government. Um, and, you know, Barada was like a co-founder of the mm. Taliban, right? And the, most of the people fighting on the ground who are kind of young hotheads, m- many of the people, many of whom will have been born after 9-11, right? And then and then in between, you've got these, you was in between the different military factions, you've got these big handfuls of, you know, you've got the Haqqani group who are sort of based over in Paktika, lawyer, lawyer, Paktika. Um, and then you've got sort of Helmanis and Kandaharis who are more linked to Quetta. And then you've got some of those guys are also linked to Iran. And then up in the north, you've got the Taliban groups around Mazar and Tajikistan that were kind of a lot of them were sponsored by Russia. And then, you know, you've got Badakshi, Talibs, and, you know, so all these sort of local different groups of Talibs. And, and really, I guess the key point is the Taliban weren't expecting to win, mm. but certainly not now. <laughs> And that's that's so suddenly they've had to so they built a kind of district and district level governance structure, sort of had a provincial, you know, they had a shadow provincial governance. Structure. So they had that in place. And those shadow provincial governors just moved across and become governors mm. of mm. their provinces, right? That they were shadows of before. But they had nothing, they had no prep whatsoever for mm. national government. And mm. all of a sudden they they're in charge and all of them are going, Well, hang on, I want to be the Minister of Finance. Mm. I don't know. Chris probably got sort of a, another view on that as well. No, I think I think that element of surprise is probably you know many people are are surprised that they were surprised, but the the speed with which they were able to 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 achieve what they did was very much un, you know uh, unexpected by them as well. And, and to that to that extent, I think it's interesting to see the, this bottom up uh, approach. As you say, things are actually more normal and regular uh, as to how they're going to do business at the district kind of village and, and provincial level. But when you get to mm-hmm. not only the composition of the government, but even the policies, we've seen now kind of drips and drabs coming out about what what can be done, what can women expect, for example. Um, we've heard conversations with Abdullah, Abdullah. We've heard conversations with um, 
uh, with Karzai as a way of trying to, you know, really form this kind of at speed while everyone else is kind of waiting around. Um, I know rather impatiently to kind of see what this government's going to be like. And in the meantime, it, very interestingly, the first foreigners kind of to enter, to re-enter the country and actually get uh, a visa with the with the new uh, you know, the Taliban imprimatur were from the Médecins Sans Frontières and the, the, um, the, the, the business of the country will now continue. And like it or not, um, many people don't want to, well, we'll talk about recognition, I think, of the Taliban, you know, de jure, but de facto, they're running the country, despite the fact that they don't seem to even have them, their own kind of uh, uh, ducks in a row yet. So it's, it is very much uh, uh, an uncertain time, very much um, not even necessarily, you know, rhetoric hasn't kind of even uh, been put out there, and now we're trying to put the pieces together. It's very much uh, making it up as they go along, as they need to, in terms of dealing with these kinds of internal negotiations, as mm. as you've said, Mike. So rather than coming out with a clear agenda and then filling in uh, filling in who's who's who in the zoo, it's almost well the agenda depends on who it is, and who it is depends on the agenda. So it will be, uh, I think, opaque uh, until that process kind of breaks the surface hey, and we see who it hey, is. Hey, who's gonna? Yeah, because like I speak to Talib, or I speak to people who speak to Talibs inside the movement. It's just complete chaos mm. about what they're going to do and what the policies are and who's in charge and all that kind of stuff. Chris, who do you reckon is going to? What's the sponsorship? You know, what countries are going to recognise them? The Afghan government's a rentier state. Who's going to pay for the? Who's going to? Mm. Who's going to sponsor this government? Like, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be everybody's going to sponsor them. Or, or again, they're going to sponsor their their team within yeah. within the Super Bowl that is going to be the the Taliban government, right? So, they, the states, uh, regional actors have interests clearly. Uh, keep extremists out. You know, worry about drug trafficking. Keeping sympathetic extremist groups in their home countries from kind of linking up exploiting mineral resources and other kind of domestic uh, commercial resources such that they will be. So there's going to be lots of opportunities for countries to get in there. And again, it's, it's not rocket scientists to, to figure out who they're going to be. Mm. Clearly Pakistan will be there, Iran, India, Russia, uh, the Central Asian republics, uh, as well as China. And what will be interesting is a lot of those sponsors, not only will they be backing individual aspects of the Taliban, they mm. themselves will be competing. So, I mean, again, the word great game is one of these kind of cliches by now, but again, mm. we will see a competition of these various sponsors who yeah. also don't agree on, on what they want to get out of it, uh, backing different a- aspects of the, of the Taliban who also don't necessarily agree. I think in some sense for now, a unifying, if that's the right word, or at least a focal point will be this problem of dealing with, you know, uh, Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know Mike's got stuff to say about whether or not the, we can really parse those apart. But I think the the feeling is that there's going to be a terrorist problem, an extremist problem, and it needs to be dealt with. And therefore, I think many countries will see the Taliban as the the horse to back in that fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, surprisingly to many, I think they will get uh, either de facto or de jure recognition and sponsorship uh, in spades, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. So, so just to re- kind of round up on that for a little bit, because that's a that's a that, that's a really interesting point to to go from. But just to recap very very quickly, the key point you're making is that at the moment there's still a very kind of uh, fragmented Taliban leadership cohesion, and that is still being morphed and it's and it's forming, and we still don't have any kind of government uh, to speak of, and it's very much the control is still kept at the local level. 
to what extent do you think there is a wedge that exists between the kind of provincial, regional uh, Taliban commanders and the senior level? Because we, if we still don't have that cohesion, we, we're not. It, it, it strikes me as though we're not there yet uh, to be talking about supporting or uh, legitimizing a Taliban, whoever ends up leading the Taliban. Uh, uh, I guess we're not there yet. Uh, what's your thoughts? Uh, is there a wedge there that's still being potentially exploited? And, and that's where this kind of ISIS threat can also uh, uh, splinter even further the, uh, the, the, the movement, so to speak. Well, I think fragmentation, and I'll leave, them, leave it to Mike to talk a little bit about the, exactly the, the flavors of that fragmentation, which I think it, it is the key word. I, do, I don't agree that, they, that the countries will wait to see who's in charge. They will be backing their own horses already. Yeah. And in, in some senses, they may, be, they may mm. well Below back the their own. Yeah. yeah, they may well be backing their own lower level faction mm-hmm. and backing a different faction whenever the the real Taliban, uh, you know, as a yeah. government, yeah. Uh, don't yeah. expect people to be rational or unified. They will they will try to pull on whatever lever they can in order to meet their own individual interests, which can be, you know, antagonistic to this mm. idea that let's let the dust settle. Let's wait for things to kind of, uh, you know, uh, become normalized. That that that's not necessarily the kind of forces that are acting on this. Uh, this thing. Yeah, there are countries already already reacting. I guess is that you know they're not you know there's no tactics. They're not waiting around. Yeah, no, that's right. They're already not. in there. Yeah. Sorry, Mike, you were about to. But jump it's in it's well. Hard. well. I was just going to say it's, the problem is like you've got, we've got to look at how outsiders understand Afghanistan. Predominantly, they understand Afghanistan through like they like to draw categories, right? Like it's a horrendously complicated country, right? So outsiders love to draw categories around groups of militants right and so we talk about is and we talk about the taliban right nobody's talking in the media about all the different factions of the taliban but they are a massive as we've just been discussing they're a mm. huge part of this then what else do we have well then from the chinese point of view you know they're really interested in uyghurs right that's their big thing right and the political taliban leadership before about two weeks before they took to, when when barada went to go and see the foreign minister in china Taliban released a statement that the Uyghurs were an internal problem um, for China to deal with. Well, that will probably come as news to the Uyghurs and their mm. Taliban brethren who are fighting or were fighting recently in, in Badakhshan province, right? So <laughs> it, all yeah. these outsiders, whether you're Chinese or American or probably Russian as well, or have less visibility of, of kind of the, the exact intricacies of their sponsorship, have drawn boxes around different groups of Afghans, right? In order to channel funding, in order mm. to achieve, uh, you know, outcomes. And the question is, are those the right boxes? So mm. let's look at it from the American perspective, right? They're going, well, you know, and we can sort of see this already. In fact, you know, it's been happening for a couple of years in certain parts of Afghanistan. They're working with the Taliban to fight IS. Okay. Well, the thing is, like, if, if I think about that particular, there's a, the Taliban and IS and also the Haqqanis, right? So the Haqqanis are a uh, big faction within the Taliban. They were originally a, a group that rose up. Uh, the head of the franchise now dead, but Jalaluddin Haqqani was a big guerrilla fighter against the Russians. They rode out in the jihad. And then they kind of joined the Talibs much more recently and became a major faction. But but Siraj, who's now taken over the mantle from Jalaluddin, has become one of the deputy leaders, one of the three deputies of the Taliban, right? 
So technically they're integrated, but in reality it's Afghanistan. So the Haqqanis are looking after the Haqqanis, the Helmanis are looking after the Helmanis, all the rest of it. And now where IS are, where their kind of area is in Afghanistan is over in the, in, in basically in the Haqqani area, right? So what, what, if you draw a Venn diagram, you, you could draw three circles on it with like the overlap with Taliban, Mm. Haqqani network and IS and then there would be you know movement between the two a lot of the IS guys were actually Talib guys who just defected or switched sides right and of the IS guys that I'm really familiar with the ones in Helmand's there was a brief sort of flash of IS in Helmand's Rauf who's the IS leader in Helmand's um had like he must have been dizzy he changed sides so many times over his jihadi career like he started out on the government in the communist government and then switched about 10 billion times mm. and eventually ended up in the taliban and then switched to is and then got killed by a u.s drone strike in like 2015 or 2016 or something mm. and that kind of killed off the is faction in inverted commas um in Helmand. but mm. we see similar stuff you know Antonio Giustosi has written a fantastic book on this, um, detailing the kind of emergence of IS in that Haqqani area that I detailed. Mm. And it's the same. It's side switching. It's, you know, local stuff driving it. So the boxes that the Americans are drawing between these guys, uh, uh, the, the, the State Department yesterday, the spokesperson said the Haqqani and the Taliban are different things, which... I mean, the Taliban's they published their own leadership structure that says that Haqqani is one of their deputies. So just, you know, I think they're coming at it. But I think that's... To be, to be, well, sorry, Chris, go on. No, I was just going to say, I think the, the main point that, that, that I take away from what you're saying, and I can fully agree, is that people are drawing their own maps. It doesn't, re- you know, th- there's the reality, which yeah. is complicated, it's yeah. confusing, and it's ever-changing. But if, for, the, for the sake of whatever their own national objective is people are more Absolutely. comfortable creating a narrative mm, yeah. creating a, a map and and ned price's comments yesterday you know was it misinformation as in he doesn't know what he's saying or was it disinformation in the sense that okay we're writing this map again right here we go we're going to now start <laughs> yeah, yeah, saying map. who's who <laughs> yeah right? that, means so, and, and, policy objectives. Yeah. that means yeah. they won't achieve their policy objectives and sorry, just finally, when we're talking about the, that Venn diagram with three circles, of course, the fourth circle in that Venn diagram is the Pakistani ISI, so the Pakistani intelligence agencies who have sponsored the Taliban, sponsored Haqqani, and one assumes have got some dealings with IS. So, mm. you know, disentangle that. Yeah. But but I think you, you, that's the, yeah, that's the... That's the complexity, and I think just to take Chris's point about the narratives or the, the simple narratives, it, it, it's inevitable that there are competing narratives. There's the simple black and white uh, that we hear, um, you know, certainly in the mainstream discussions, mainstream media. But then the further you go down, the more you realize, well, hold on, it's actually not uh, nowhere near that simple. But the problem is that we end up making decisions based on those simple narratives, uh, which ultimately end up, you know, contributing to the problem. Is, is that is that something that you see happening at the moment, Chris? Absolutely, right. I mean, and and you know, the, the cliches are everywhere, right? But as Einstein said, I would rather spend ninety percent of the time trying to figure out the problem than actually worry about the solution. And we are definitely not following his advice, right? 
yesterday in the speech that, that that President Biden gave, very moving speech, clearly very emotional for him, this idea that vengeance is going to be, you know, he will avenge the death of the service members that were killed, you know, sadly just kind of starts the whole kind of narrative all over again. And people have been saying, yes, but, you know, Americans will demand, uh, 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 you know, blood. They will, they're baying for blood, which you know, in some ways should make a lot of sense in the sense that it's not very different from the kind of um, instincts that we see in, in um, as Mike has kind of written about quite a bit. But you would hope that in, of anything, I mean, the, 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 20th, the 20th anniversary of this event, George Bush is out for, you know, dead or alive, kind of, we will hunt them down every last one of them. That's how we started this. And it looks like we're going to we thought we were going to come to the end of something, but it looks like now we might be kind of back on, on an upswing. And in order to 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 act at that level of very populist kind of um, uh, reaction, you need to simplify things and you need to harness your own narrative because no one's got time or attention to listen to you know people like Mike and and, and others who actually know the the intimacies, um, and therefore. You know, the simple narrative that sits on top of that, the very few lines that are written with a very broad um, marker are what you're stuck with. So, for example, you, you know, you talk about ISI, ISI, for a long time, people assumed that the Pakistani intelligence was kind of the main actor. But now in the 20 years since we've we've been doing this, India is a very different country than it was 20 years mm. ago. It, it wants uh, a role on the international stage. It's very much come into its own yeah. stride as a as a global actor. And now we've got, you know, the research and analysis wing, the, the Indian equivalent of the ISI playing kind of, you know, spy versus spy inside Afghanistan, looking for proxies, looking for ways to to score points against their their traditional foe, uh, you know, that happens to be happening kind of on the chessboard that is Afghanistan. So everybody seems to be, as, as Mike said, drawing their own lines, drawing their own scripts, playing their own game, as it were, which just means you've got layers upon layers, as if the underlying strata isn't already confusing mm. enough. People are going to be adding their own dimensions, which at one hand, simplify things, oversimplify them for themselves, but actually add to other levels of complexity. Mm. What's the relationship between China and Russia going to be inside Afghanistan, let alone what it might be outside Afghanistan? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, it, yeah, that's a, a really nuanced point that I don't think uh, resonates, you know, can't, it just can't resonate strongly enough, I think, because it's, uh, it, we never understood Afghanistan in the first place. Right, we went in. When I, when I say we, the West went into a place that we didn't really understand. Uh, as you're saying, the region has moved on from that lack of knowledge that we had. It's gone another twenty years forward. There's added complexities that are now, you know, basically pouring fuel onto the you know complexity that already existed. Yeah. And I'm no, I'm no genius, but I will bet you a large coffee that somebody in the next two weeks says, "If you're not with us, you're against us." When they talk about all of these various <laughs> yeah. countries. But that, but- we had two boxes, right, mm. 20 years ago that were government and Taliban or Tal-Qaeda, mm. you know. And you, so it was A or B, right? And then the whole premise of the coin strategy and the surge and all this lot, all of it was based on that idea of there being an Afghan government that we're supporting to fight an insurgency. But that, as we've been discussing, you know, it's mm. a civil war in Afghanistan. We're entering the 44th year of that civil mm. war. And um, it's going to make yeah. fifty. It's probably make sixty yeah. as well. 
right? And the reason, one of the reasons that happens, and the Russians did the same as well, you know, for the Russians, it was um, revolutionaries versus counter-revolutionaries, or they used to call the Mujahideen Duki, which is ghost, Russian for mm. ghost, because they used to appear, brass everything up and then disappear, right? So the Russians did it, all the outsiders do it. And what ultimately it means is if you try and impose a straitjacket onto a multifocal civil war, you won't, first and foremost, and this is what I don't understand why governments do this, because it means you won't achieve your policy objectives. What are the policy objectives? I mean, I, I, I think that's the first point that remains. But, but you know what I mean? That's the, that's it strikes me as the first point of failure that we don't actually, I mean, all of a sudden now we're, you know, up for revenge. And that's, uh, you know, that's, so, it's a knee-jerk reaction. The yeah. It, yeah. Let me just give a quick, like, run through of the policy objectives mm. of the surrounding countries slash the great powers. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see how much of a, mm. of a, yeah, of a train wreck this is going to yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm trying to, I'm trying not <laughs> I saw to that. that. I point. saw, I saw I that. That's say, why I thought I helped yeah. you. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say clusterfuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Iran is interested in the Southwest is very interested in water from the river Helmand. Uh, that's a huge issue for Iran. It's got drug trade problems. It's interested in the Shia Hazara population. Uh, those are three of the main ones for um, Russia is very, very interested in militancy in Central Asian states. Uh, and they're interested in protecting what they see as their sphere of influence in the Central Asian states from militancy, but also from China. Right. China is interested in minerals, it's interested in Belt and Road Initiative, and it's interested in terrorism, but it's also competing with Russia and Central Asian states. So what, what quite like Chris was saying, what the relationship between in Afghanistan when they've been already like sparring a little bit in Central Asia. Mm. Pakistan is interested in having an allied state on its western border because it's obviously got this problem with India. Um... And it also wants to keep China on side because China is now the main sponsor of Pakistan. India's really lost out the most from this and they'll be interested. And they're now surrounded by either China or states friendly to China. So they will be interested in probably opening up another front in uh, Afghanistan. I can certainly see Russia and India making common cause over what's going on in Afghanistan. And potentially there have been some rumors that the Russians, the Russians have just evacuated their embassy after saying they'd stay. So the rumor is, or the, the supposition is that they're now supporting the Panjshiris mm. to be a thorn in the Taliban side. Uh, great powers. Uh, so Europe's irrelevant. Um, UK is irrelevant. America really actually America could just step back and go, um, but I suspect that they'll want to, it's a good way of sticking it to China. Uh, what else? I mean, we could go on, but like, mm, just to mm. give you an idea of the, and that wasn't even going into any kind yeah. of detail. That was just off the top of my head. Here's yeah, two or three main issues yeah. that each country is interested in. Like superficial layers without even yeah going down into the actual, yeah, true yeah. motivations. And then there's a thousand the factions in yeah. Afghanistan who are all turning, oh, yeah, we can help you with that issue. <laughs> you, you were nodding uh, for most of that as well, Chris. Did you want to add something as well? No, I completely agree. I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, it, it becomes an order of magnitude more complicated than, than, than people assume. And, and the, the, the actors that 
you know, Mike is mentioning, were not really on anybody's radar screen when we started this off 20 years ago. As you said, it was pretty black and white, right? Now it's all the colors of the rainbow, if you want to put it that way. Um, America had an opportunity to break, and I think that's exactly what Biden wanted, right? That's what Biden said. And I think he was very clear in making it uh, the case that don't don't bother to try to wheedle me. I know what's going to happen. You guys are all going to come placating and saying, no, but boss, we can't, we can't, we can't. I think he very much put up a wall around himself and said, I will not be dissuaded. This is what's going to go. The, you know, the man is not for turning mm. as it were. And, and mm. he was going to stick with that. Uh, and, you know, breaking eggs, making omelets, all that kind of stuff. I think he, he was willing as, as George Stephanopoulos asked him and he re- responded in an interview last week, Stephanopoulos said something to the effect of, did you, did you price the catastrophe into your decision? Did you kind mm. of know that it was going to be bad and therefore were prepared, even if the worst case scenario happened to accept it? And, and uh, Biden said, yes, absolutely. And I think that was an honest answer at the time. Um, he, he knew that otherwise, if he gave anybody uh, an opportunity, the camel's nose would be under the tent and there would be, yeah, but just keep another 500, 1,000, 1,500, 5,000, and we would be there forever and ever. He wanted to make a clean yeah. break and he needed to do that. I was convinced that that was the case until yesterday. And again, you know, emotively, domestic political pressure wise, when he said, you know, there will be vengeance. And we've already, you know, what what that means is they're not going to take that step back, whether it means there's going to be CIA and more covert operations that are there, not only looking for Americans, which will become now a myth, will become uh, uh, an ethos to kind of drive a lot of furthering the stab in the back theory that already exists within the United States. There's already calls, for example, domestically to impeach uh, uh, President Biden. So that's given fuel to to that, his domestic opposition. And the, there will need to be some demonstrable, you know, answer to what happened mm. uh, yesterday at the, at the Abbey Gate. And yeah. that will mean that America can't even get that kind of fire break that they, they truly wanted uh, for, yeah. for, you know, for, with all that that goes along with it. And I, and I suspect also the, you know, rest of, uh, uh, you know, certainly Australia, UK, Canada, I suspect would be uh, jumping on that uh, rather quickly as well, because I think there's th- there has been sufficient pressure building up, certainly in Australia and in the circles that I'm, um, you know, re- even remotely tapped in that we should have done something, we should be doing something. This is atrocious. We shouldn't be letting our uh, allies down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's there's enough pressure built up, and this potentially could be the battle. Should have, would have, could have, such a shit yeah. way to do foreign policy, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, no, no, but I'm, really I'm, I'm, but, but I, I agree. But I'm talking more from the even you know the rank and file, so to speak. Uh, the kind of the, the, this this sufficient uh, dissatisfaction and almost anger, not almost definitely anger and embarrassment as to how the withdrawal has actually occurred. Uh, that you know that might provide sufficient pressure from bottom up uh, for you know our, our governments also to consider you know jumping on some sort of a response well again i i think that um comment that i made earlier that you're all gonna owe me a coffee for this you know if you're not with us you're, you're mm, against us yeah. that will be there applied to regional governments but that will also yeah. be applied to mm, yeah the league of democracies or the english-speaking world or five mm. eyes or the quad or yeah. you name it uh, the g7 there will be an attempt by the america if, if america has does come up with a decision i'm not going to call mm. it a strategy but a decision that they're going to do um <laughs> part of that will be we don't want to get you know more of this on us uh, th- than we can and there will be an a, there will be an attempt to 
you know, I'll come out and say it, bully uh, uh, other like-minded countries to to get on with it. Um, yeah. And different countries will respond to that in different ways. Canada has more than 60% of its GDP with its main trade partner, the United mm. States. So standing shoulder to shoulder is not just great loyalty to to a, a wounded giant friend. Uh, it's also smart domestic policy. And, and the prime minister at the time, um, John Kirchhen, when when Afghanistan kicked off, he knew very well that the, if he wanted to keep, the, as we say, the ambassador bridge, the bridge that runs between Windsor and Detroit that has essentially billions of dollars of trade going across, if you want to keep that bridge open, get over to Afghanistan, essentially. Mm. So mm. that kind of pressure it, you know, it happens in Australia. It happens mm. in the United Kingdom. The special relationship will always need a little more buffing and polishing. Mm. Uh, and whatever that looks like, whether it's special forces dominated, whether it's intelligence services dominated, uh, there there will definitely be a push to, to make this more than just a unilateral response. Mm. So what's interesting is like, so, you know, you think the West might end up re-engaging because of all this. I, I think the most sensible thing that the West could do would be to go, no, no, no. No, we're fine now. China, you can you can deal with that. Mm. And it would, as we discussed in that little roundup, it would tie up China and Russia. And I'm talking in real politique terms here, right? Mm. I'm not saying mm. that's necessarily the best thing for the Afghan people or anything like that. I'm just saying in real politique terms, you know, Joe Biden, foreign policy expert, so self-declared, that is what you should do. That's a true kind of Henry Kissinger-esque uh, move right to hand the whole thing over to China and go. There you go, your problem. Mm-hmm. Um, big, big difference between Henry Kissinger and Joe Biden, the president, who not Joe Biden, the vice president, not Joe Biden, the senator, but Joe Biden, the president, is he is worried about already very much domestic pressure for the midterm elections in twenty two. The the they're, the conservatives, the Republicans, are seeing this as already. Yeah. Uh, Josh Hawley is saying we mm. should impeach him on grant. They sent a ben letter Darcy to times ten. Yeah, yeah. Kamala Harris. They sent a letter to Kamala Harris saying you need to use the Twenty Fifth Amendment to remove Biden because he's passed it. How did he let this happen? So Biden, the foreign policy expert, will be having an internal fight inside mm. his head as the leader of the Democratic Party who doesn't want to be a one-term president, who doesn't want to be a one-term House of Representatives, who wants to hold on to, if not win, the Senate. They're gonna. There will be. There will be some response. Let's hope it's not completely suicidal, but there will be some response. That clear break that was the yeah. absolute reason for doing this 10 yeah. days ago has gone. You reckon which that's gives, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. which gives the, that, that, you know, ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan, I mean, it gives them a, a, a really, you know, an outsized impact on what's happening on the ground. But, but also, on, this that, is the whole point of yeah. like Al Qaeda. Nine Eleven was about sucking yeah. the US into a forever yeah. war. Yeah. Like it's the same yes. fucking tactic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, it's, but but you 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 know you're the Tactics first one to strategy. yeah exactly and and you're the first one to say Mike as well that you know war is not rational. It's you know it's 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 emotional. It's emotional so I think yeah, yeah. yeah, which is what I you know which is where Chris's point really you know stands out to me that you know it seems as though it's the more likely option, especially if. He publicly went and said, you know, there will be vengeance. He will be held to those words. Uh, you know, there will be sufficient pressure on him. But this also then takes me down to the 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 the, the point and perhaps relevance of the quote unquote Northern Alliance, the resistance, you know, in Panchi Valley. 
you know, wh- where does this sit, and how do how how does that resistance play into the in this ecosystem, and and what can we expect to see on the ground? You know, between of course, Taliban is still trying to you know suppress that resistance. Uh, what are your thoughts on 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 how credible that resistance yeah. is, and whether that is the horse that might be backed again? Yeah, I mean, I think. Look, I'm sure lots of people are having lots of conversations with people in Panjshir at the moment. Um, but I think that, uh, like, I think you've got to view this as how negotiations are conducted in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is armed politics, right? You don't come to a negotiating table and without a faction of heavily armed men. Mm. And so the Panjshiris are problem they're a thorn in the taliban let's assume for the moment that the taliban are a unified thing they're a thorn in the taliban side because it stops the taliban saying we control the entire territory of blah firstly and they're a thorn because territory of Afghanistan, and they're a thorn because the political people the doha talibs the baradas of the world are saying we want to have an inclusive government with all the different factions of Afghanistan, right and if there's a mega armed faction holding out then, and plus, you've got the vice president de facto, in fact, de jure president, because the other one fled in the valley. So it's hard, you know, it makes it harder for recognition to switch and all the rest of it, right? So it's a problem for the Talibs. And that puts the Panjshiris in a great negotiating position, right? Abdullah Abdullah, another Panjshiri, is sitting in Kabul, right? And he's sitting in Kabul talking to the Talibs. So I don't know what that is if you don't, that's an emissary, isn't it? Or an ambassador. For the Panjshiris, and whilst we've got 15, 20, 30,000 guys, whatever it is, with light arms, maybe a bit of artillery, that's a real. I've been to the Panjshir Valley, it's <laughs> you can see immediately why Massoud managed to hold it for the entire Soviet war. Like, there's a very narrow defile that you have to that runs for a few hundred meters that you have to that you'd have mm. to fight your way up. It, it's impossible to take, impossible mm. to take. And so it's really a bargaining, mountains. it's more it's a bargaining, bargaining position. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, you know, we've seen over the last 24 hours, there have obviously been conversations over the last week or so, two weeks, whatever. Um, and But we've seen over the last 24 hours that actually there have been some clashes. Uh, but they clash a bit, then they talk a bit, then they clash a bit. And, you know, violence is a mechanism of communication mm. type thing. So there's a bit of that going on. Well, I saw the, just this morning. I saw you know there was a clash and you know one Talib uh, KIA, which uh, suggests right. not really, not really you know large scale combat, but nah, as you said, you know nah. uh, uh, posturing, probing, than, you know, mm, bit of uh, upping the ante on the talks, whatever you know. Mm, mm. Fundamentally, that's a very difficult problem for the Taliban to solve militarily. And again, you mm. know, everyone assumes that the Taliban are amazing because they just took over Afghanistan. But it shouldn't be viewed like that. What it, it's a, it, the government collapsed and the Taliban occupied the territory that the government vacated, mm. right? Mm. And actually, now they've got the Panjshiris who are serious about this. That's a much harder, tougher nut to crack. Sorry, Chris. No, I think I agree, completely agree with you. I think you know the the speed with which the Taliban, the Taliban's, I guess we're mm. going to call them mm. or whatever, mm. Um, mm. you know, moved in was essentially occupying empty squares on the chessboard. Uh, and they, the yeah. the weight of all those empty squares made the next row of empty squares even easier to get. Well, they've got eight, they've got sixty five percent, they've got eighty yeah. five percent. It yeah. becomes a fait accompli. This is probably the only the first challenge of of a military security problem that they've had. Both 
Now, can you actually hold Kabul? Can you actually do what you need to do? Clearly, they know that on the technical level, they can't. They've had to, they're asking the Turks to come in and run the airport and do all the, the, the things with, you know, the boxes that go ping and all that stuff that, that whatever a technical international <laughs> level airport requires, they've asked the Turks to do that. But they're going to yeah. do, they're confident or they have been confident in what the rest of it is. Security whether they're going to use these... You know, the Turks have left, though, right? Sorry to just quickly interject. The Turks have actually left. Sorry, carry on. Right, but the point is they Mm. know they need somebody to provide some levels of services, but security was something that they were fairly confident they were going to be able to do. Now it looks Mm. like Kabul is going to be a problem as well, but certainly when we're talking about Panjshir, that is in some senses will be the first time they've actually had to do much fighting. There was a little Mm. bit of fighting in the north, but again, you know, we, we haven't really seen them tested in the field, as you as you say. It's been very much uh, a blitzkrieg, mm. not through, you know... Psychological win. Yeah, yeah they, it's not been shock and awe. Yeah. This has been very yeah. much more, uh, you know, advancing on a crumbling edifice. Mm. Well, mm. and where they did have a motivated force-on-force thing, say, down in Lashkargah, which... So there you had, you know, the, the Afghan government commandos that till the end and you had a you know competent general sami syed and you know you had all that kind of stuff they failed to take lashkagar lash was one of the last provincial capitals to fall fell after kandahar and after the leadership had been reassigned up to do the security of kabul and the mm-hmm. command a lot of the commandos withdrawn where they did have to go up against the in a kind of force on force thing and lash is much easier to take geographically you know, in terms of topographic terms than the Panjshir Valley is, they couldn't do it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, and one of the things that we, we can't not talk about is the fact that, you know, what, by some estimates, $85 billion worth of American military equipment is now in the hands of the Taliban. To what extent do you think that changes their position, well, in the region, for one, but certainly now in Afghanistan, uh, you know, is is that is that a significant, you know, strengthening know, of? Well, yeah, I think that. Well, okay, so look, yeah, I've heard other figures, right? Like, mm. you know, the Taliban own more Black Hawk helicopters than eighty-five yeah. percent of the countries in the world, or whatever. But mm. like, can yeah, the yeah. Taliban use Black Hawks? Actually, fly them, and yeah, that's right. once yeah. they've used them twice, can they then maintain the maintenance and all the rest of it? Like, so what weaponry did the Afghan army leave behind the Taliban, you know, pickups and Humvees. Sure, mm. they can use that kind of basic armored vehicle and, you know, obviously light and medium weapons, maybe even a bit mm. of artillery and all that kind of stuff. But it's not, you know, they're not going to be flying I Star and fighter jets and all the rest of it um, because they don't have, you know, that stuff's complicated. And, and even if sorry, they, even if they were, I think, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. There's 80, you know, whatever number you want to do, but how much of that is going to be a static display in front of, you know, a, a, a gate somewhere as a, as a decoration piece and how much of it is actually usable yeah. is, a, is a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. But even mm-hmm. if they were able to use it, let's look at it this way. If, if we're saying the Taliban now has to do its own counterinsurgency against ISIS-K or, or the boogeyman, whoever that is, you know, technology. America had much more technology than than the Taliban will inherit, and they weren't able to do it either. So, the, I think we have to yeah. be a little bit careful yeah. about you yeah. know technological solutionism, right? If anything, mm-hmm. we've seen that this is much more complicated, and it goes back to what we all learned at one point that war is actually about. It's not only about body counts, bullet counts, how many aircraft you have, how many mm-hmm. sorties you fly. Mm-hmm. 
it's mm. about a, a combination of, of, you know, can you impose your will on your adversary who's also trying to impose their will on you? I mean, that's mm. what war is about. And whether you're talking nuclear weapons, whether you're talking about bows and arrows, it boils down to that. So we've got we've allowed ourselves to get distracted a little bit, mm. to fall into the same game that we've been trying to win for the last 20 years, which is how many square kilometers do you own? Uh, you know, how many district capitals do you own? How many road miles can you do in a week unopposed? Yeah. Whatever metric we want to put on this is all just a proxy of, of yeah. in some senses, nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, yeah, I don't think we like should... humans. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a that's an interesting point because I was actually going to bring in your article that you that you published together, which I which I thought was really insightful, and it speaks to that very point about you know the 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 reliance on the illusion of technological superiority, which in Afghanistan certainly proved to mean absolutely nothing, right? Which is that, and that's the point you're making, Chris, as well, yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, again, and I you know I don't want to abstract this too much, but I mean, mm. it, it it also was the case in Vietnam. It, mm. And it didn't make a difference there either. Uh, as a matter of fact, the irony that very many, very many of the same aircraft, B-52s, were involved in that as well. There's no doubt. There's no doubt there was superiority of, of, of arms. From space-based you know, surveillance to uh, laser-based target designation, you name it. From minute one of this uh, uh, Western mm. in, in, in involvement, there has been... Take your Janes off the shelf and, you know, uh, please mm. yourself in front of it. You mm. will get a very clear picture who should win. <laughs> the reality mm. is that's not enough to make a difference. And we've seen that repeatedly over and over again. We let ourselves get distracted, whether it was with Sputnik, whether it was with the missile gap, whether it was with whatever. We get so mm. caught up in this technological dimension of it, which is an ingredient. It's certainly not an, not an ingredient. But mm. as, it's as an angular. It's an mm. enabler. Mike and I mentioned this in the in the in in the article that we talk about uh, uh, the, the Taliban and and the, and the arm uh, the Afghan National Army. But you know, in Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan, we've also seen a very interesting and much more nuanced uh, relationship between old and new tech, between yeah. innovation and ways you use yeah. that tech. Not just otherwise, it's like just put it on the table. We'll count it all up and say, well, you're the winner. Go home. I mean, that's not what we're what we're talking about. Clearly, if if that were the case, there would be very clear winners and losers, and we would just you know get I double I double S to to adjudicate who wins, and we could walk away. But that's not what we're talking about. It's the human thing, right? This is mm -hmm. about who can who can you know as uh, as the Iron Duke said, right? Who the hard pounding this? Who can pound the hardest for the longest? A lot mm -hmm. of that comes into it, but psychologically as well. And we saw a technologically superior, albeit stunted in their own way because they were supported and constrained by the West, the Afghan national uh, security forces had that technological advantage. And it mattered absolutely not for much. In 99% of the cases, they mm. had other things in mind, switching sides, rolling up, listening to what was going on back in Kabul, etc. And it, it really didn't boil down in many cases to the bigger caliber or, or even the more mm. ammunition. It was not a technologically one fight. Yeah. Survival is a, is a fascinating uh, uh, motivation. Well, we're, we're, I, th I think we, we're also probably going to bring this to a uh, close pretty soon. Probably the, uh, and, and a lot's been said and I, and I appreciate both of your insights uh, on this. I'm going to put you both on the spot. Mike, what do you see happening in the next, you know, in, 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 in the next week or so? In the next week, I think 
we'll probably see some American military strikes once they've got all their people out. I'm going to go on a limb and say I don't think we're going to see a Taliban government announce. We might do towards the end of the week. And then I think I think China might be the first government to recognise them. Well, Pakistan, but China might China will be the first great power, hmm. first Security Council power to recognise them. I think. Um, yeah, I think that's it. And then you know, I think the media narrative is going to move on to the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Hmm. Yeah, which has I, always I, been ongoing. But yeah, so. I agree with I agree with uh, Mike. I I don't necessarily think the Chinese recognition would happen in a week, but I think they will probably be the first to do so when that when it comes to that. I think we will see not just a media narrative, but in, in, a, in a large way, the international, if we want to call it that, uh, activity will be transitioning to humanitarian aid and activity. Some of it by remote control through it, local implementing partners and NGOs, as mm. we've seen already, Médecins Sans Frontières trying to come in and, and, and set up the stuff that they do, but also the UN, who in many cases have been caught as flat-footed uh, with the announcement of, uh, uh, of the American withdrawal as, as other individual countries were. And it'll mm. be a while for them to kind of get back on level footing and figure out how is this going to be sorted out? Because they're in a real dilemma right now. Um, they're traditional donors uh, for a lot of their development programs, not so much the humanitarian, have hinged upon the kind of Western narrative that's been at play for the last 20 years, which is mm. human rights expanding the franchise and the political space for women to to pr fully participate in um depending on how that is constrained um they will feel perhaps less generous in providing mm. for those kinds of activities now that may well be okay with the taliban they may say we're not going to allow those activities anyway but yeah. um i think we will see a a shrink shrinkage in how much international development and aid money will be available for Afghanistan, which will mean that while the focus is there, uh, there won't necessarily be the largesse that we've seen in the past because rightly or wrongly, the way that this was done at the Berlin conference in 2004, there will be a very different vibe now. Bon. When you, bon. No, the Bonn conference was the political side, but the Berlin conference ah, in 2004 was really about the donors of who was going to deal with if you remember, there was who's going to deal with drugs, who's going to deal yeah, with yeah. governance. Absolutely. And there was, sorry, my mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the splitting up of that. It's going to be, you're not going to get Iran and India and Pakistan and China and Russia to play an overt kind of international largesse role in the same way that Japan, who was coerced to do it yeah, by, yeah. By, the, by the Americans, the EU, who were, you know, uh, understood very well where they needed to be. It will be a very different landscape moving forward. This sovereignty first movement, that, you know, again, everybody likes to associate with Trump, uh, has become in many ways, you know, the leitmotif of international relations of late. We've seen it in the G7s, uh, that we've seen it in, in other places. There is a, a, a recalcitrance to kind of put our, put people's necks out there and to focus on what the people at home want, which isn't more immigration, which isn't necessarily, um, doing the long-term kinds of development that are going to, that are really going to make a difference for Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I think there will be orders of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, less resources than are, than are required to address, mm -hmm. uh, address this. Somebody from UNHCR today was saying in the news, there's about half a million they figure was their kind of worst case scenario in terms of uh, displaced people in 96 to 2001, that figure of displaced people was about 7 million. I believe there was the largest, uh, refugee population in the world at the time. Uh, and therefore, if they're, you know, 
they're kind of looking for funding at the half million point, I'm not sure that that even their worst case scenario is going to be big enough, nor will it be funded enough to actually address what's going to what's going to happen in the next few months. Right. Well, well, it would be remiss of me not to not to just kind of double click on that point a little bit because I think you, you're bringing up a number of uh, really significant risks and dangers uh, that you know we might see in the near future as well. And that is, of course, the humanitarian crisis. But you know, we also can't forget those who are also trying to get out. Uh, but also, the the other point is that, that you're making is, well, where does the Taliban get finance to you know sustain? The country, if the aid, the foreign aid that they, you know, in some ways uh, are still, I guess, and, and correct if I'm wrong here, but they're still hoping to negotiate uh, some concessions for some foreign aid. Uh, you know, well, what does I that think, look like then? I think they'll get bilateral assistance, shall we say. China will assist them, but it won't be done through the mechanisms of the UN necessarily, is what I mean. It won't be kind mm-hmm. of put it in the pot. So if China wants to give them money to develop Belt and Road Initiative things, which the Taliban would probably be quite happy to have. Counter-terrorist police. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That will be done mm-hmm. on a more bilateral because it's much easier to control, right? You can turn the tap off, etc. So so will India. So will Russia. So will the, the Central Asian republics. That's not going to meet those bigger, let's call them milieu goals of feeding people on the borders, whether they're IDPs yeah. or refugees. Yeah. It's going to be very much more focused and targeted on a on a bilateral uh, basis as opposed to multilateral infrastructure you know china's going to go big on building roads and all that stuff yeah Mm -hmm. gentlemen it's been fascinating and i think uh yeah i think there's many questions that you've answered Uh, i think uh you know we can find another hundred questions uh, for every one of those Uh, it's a it's a tender time i think in afghanistan at the moment so uh, we'll eagerly await to see how it unfolds Uh, but i thank you both for your time and uh, certainly hope we can do this again because i think uh, you certainly provide some interesting dynamics and insights Uh, so thank you both very much thanks for having us thanks for joining us for another episode of the voices of war You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.